We've had Ulysses in all his glory step up and give the monologue that brings comedy to a dead halt, because after all, we're faced with the faces of drowning men, even perhaps heroic men. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we're slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we have come to Canto 26 of Inferno. We are in the eighth of the evil pouches of fraud that make up the eighth circle of hell. We are way down here toward the bottom of hell, and we have come to one of the greatest sinners of all of hell, Ulysses. In the last episode of this podcast, we looked at Ulysses' long monologue and how it operates as a text in and of itself. Now we're going to start one of two episodes, the case against, in this episode, and next time, the case for Ulysses. Now, you may say this is kind of weird, for and against. What's the point? Ulysses is in hell. He's damned. We want to talk about that. We want to talk about why cases can be made for and against him as a character in the poem. All of that ahead. But first, without any sound effects or any voices, let me just read you again Ulysses' monologue. This is Inferno, Canto 26, lines 85 through 142. If you want to find this translation, it's on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. They go to the same place. You can read along or even drop a comment there. Here's the big speech. The bigger horn of the ancient flame began to quiver, murmuring as if it were affected by the wind, then shimmering its tip this way and that, as if it itself were a tongue that could speak. It brought out its voice and said, When I left Circe, who'd kept me for more than a year at a spot not far from Gaeta before Aeneas named it that, Neither any affection for my son, nor any reverence toward my old father, nor the debt of love I owed to Penelope, which would have pleased her, could vanquish the ardor inside me that wanted to experience the wide world, including all the vices and heroics of humanity. So I put out on the deep open sea with only one ship and just a few companions who had not abandoned me. I saw one coast, then another, all the way out to Spain, even as far as Morocco, as well as the island of Sardinia and the other islands that bathe in that sea. I and my companions had gotten old and slow when we made it to the narrow strait where Hercules had marked off the warning limits beyond which men shouldn't venture. Off the starboard side, I took my leave of Seville, and off the port, I'd already taken my leave of Ceuta. Oh, brothers, I said, who threw a hundred thousand dangers have made it to the west, to this last little bit of readiness that still hangs on in our senses. Do not deny yourselves the experience on beyond the sun of an unpeopled world. Give full credit to your origins. You were not created to live like beasts, but to live in the search for virtue and knowledge. I had made my companions so impassioned with my little speech for the journey ahead, I could hardly have held them back from it. We set our stern toward the sunrise and turned our oars into wings for our mad flight, always gaining our way on the port side. All the stars that surround the Antipodes already glimmered in the night, while our own from back home were so low they didn't even rise above the ocean's floor. Five times 
We'd seen the light beneath the moon wax and wane since we'd started on this high pass. When a mountain rose up, still dim in the distance, it seemed to me I'd never seen any taller. We let out cries of joy, although they soon morphed into grief, for a whirlwind came out of that new land and struck the prow of the ship. Three times it spun the ship around in all that water. At the fourth, our stern reared up to a height, and the prow went plunging down as it pleased another, until the sea shut tight over us. I swear it gives me goosebumps every time. I I can't read it without some kind of emotional reaction to it. It's just astounding. There are eight points I want to make in the case against Ulysses. And without any further ado, let's just get to them. First, why make a case for or against Ulysses? As I already said, isn't Ulysses in hell? Isn't the case already being made against Ulysses? Why? Because Ulysses has now, for almost 200 years, been turned into a romantic hero. This Ulysses from comedy has been turned into this Byronic hero that dares what can damn him in order to gain what he wants at all costs. All you have to do is turn to Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem, Ulysses, and that last line of the poem, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. I mean, this is the grand romantic hero who is striding across the world, or in Tennyson's case, striding like a Victorian empire builder, striding across the world to find his place in a much wider world when he doesn't want to stay at home with that old wife and father and children. There's a lot of misogyny that goes into this romantic portrait of Ulysses, and I would argue there's even a little misogyny in Dante's speech by Ulysses. That's why we need to build a case against Ulysses, because he has for so long been turned into a romantic hero, and for good reason. After all, the speech does give me goosebumps. Second, Ulysses is a Greek, and by that, for Dante, is not almost in and of itself, to damn him. The Greeks, if you remember, as I have told you over and over again from Virgil's Aeneid, are the ones who destroy Troy. Yes, there is a divine providential edge to that because the Trojans come boiling out of the gates of Troy. They go across the Aegean and ultimately land on the Italian peninsula. And with Aeneas as their lead, they found the Roman Empire, what will become the Roman Empire. But more importantly to Dante, and we want to talk about this in this podcast, the Roman Republic. Dante's a little bit fudged on this republic public versus empire thing. We'll talk about why in a minute. For now, let's just say for Dante, there is no Roman church without a Roman empire, given that there is this divine providential bit with the Trojans coming out of Virgil. And since Ulysses is a Greek, we would expect Dante to have nothing good to say about him. Our third 
point in the case against Ulysses is that Ulysses is not forthright about his own motivations. When he first starts talking to Virgil and Dante, what he says is that he wants to uh, experience the wide world, including all the vices and heroics of humanity. It's this kind of unbelievable exploratory impulse that can't stop the restlessness inside of him. But when he gives his big impassioned speech to his companions, telling them to sail on into the West, what he says is don't deny yourself the experience on Beyond the Sun of an unpeopled world. How can you have the experience of an unpeopled world if what you want to do is explore all the vices and heroics of humanity? There is a disconnect in the motivations. Either he's lying to Virgil and to Dante, or he's lying to his companions. We should say that there is something funky inside Ulysses' speech itself, something that doesn't jive just right. And Dante is at some pains to tell us that because if you will look at the poetry, even in my English translation, much less in the Florentine, it is distinctly full of enjambments. What are enjambments? An enjambment is when a poetic line doesn't stop at the end of the line, but continues on to the next line. In this passage by Ulysses, the first word he speaks, when, when I left Circe, who'd kept me for more than a year at a spot not far from Gaeta, that bit, that word when is not the beginning of a line. It's the last word in the preceding line. And over and over again throughout this speech, the lines wrap awkwardly around each other. Now, let me say that in the modern world, we love enjambments. We love them in poetry. We love what they do to poetry. Dante will come to embrace more of them later in the comedy. But for now, the sense of enjammed lines, that is, lines that don't end at the end of their natural stop of a line, but wrap into the line following it, those lines seem to indicate something uh, broken, something hurdy-gurdy, something that is jagged and not fully crafted. Again, Dante is going to embrace enchantment much more later in the poem, but right now, when we look at Ulysses' speech, what we see is a lot of very strange lines that don't end in their natural place. We are being cued by the poet to say that Ulysses is not necessarily forthright in his own language. Fourth point, Ulysses rouses his compatriots with this speech, O oh, brothers, who through a hundred thousand dangers have made it through the West. And most commentators over the course of comedy's history have talked about the speech that Aeneas gives to his troops as they set out. But that's 
actually not the reference here. Lately, more and more scholars have come to realize that this bit, oh brothers who through a hundred thousand dangers have made it to the West, is actually lifted from Lucan's Pharsalia. It's in book one, it starts in line 299, and it even includes numerical references such as go on here. It's when Julius Caesar rallies his troops to, well, destroy the Roman Republic. And if you know anything about Lucan's Pharsalia, you know that Caesar is not the hero of the Pharsalia, to say the least. It is the tragedy of Pompey and others who fight against Caesar, who are trying to save the Republic from this empire builder. Caesar is a schismatic in the Pharsalia. He's a narcissist. He brings on the empire. He is preening. He's difficult to take. And that Ulysses here in Dante's poem is being likened to Caesar in the Pharsalia tells us that he's a difficult figure. Now, as I told you, Dante has a certain strange relationship with Julius. After all, the Roman Empire is where the church is founded, not the Roman Republic. And yet, at the same time, Dante himself prefers the Republic and its Republican virtues as opposed to Caesar and his imperial, august, and as we might now say in the modern world, fascist designs on the Mediterranean. This is a complicated figure. We'll talk more about Caesar as we move forward in the poem and Dante's complicated relationship with him. But for now, it's enough to say that if Ulysses is being compared to Julius Caesar in the Pharsalia, if he's essentially quoting or mimicking lines from Caesar rallying his troops in the Pharsalia, then he is not being seen in a very good light. Our fifth point in the case against Ulysses, if he's not forthright about his motivations, and if, let's say for a moment, he is lying both about his desire to see all of humanity's heroics and vices and his desire to see an unpeopled world, well then, what is he up to? Many commentators have claimed that what Ulysses is trying to do is seek immortality without death. You get this from the line of having made it to the Occident, having made it to the West, the traditional folkloric afterlife. And although Ulysses may not know and does not necessarily know that there is Mount Purgatory ahead of him, still sailing into the West has all kinds of folkloric imagery of passing into the afterlife without dying. And Ulysses then, according to many commentators, is trying to seek immortality without death. And in a Christian poem, of course, it's impossible to enter the afterlife without dying. Not even Jesus entered hell without dying on the cross. So you can't get here as 
a human form without first dying. Not that in Christian tradition, Jesus is not fully God and fully human, but you know what I mean. The harrowing of hell, even that, occurs after Jesus's death on the cross in Christian theology. Ulysses is trying to do what no mortal can do. Sixth in our cases against Ulysses, as we build it like a lawyer, Ulysses is a bit of a tempter, a snake figure like in the Garden of Eden. And in fact, if we have to talk about that as Ulysses, as the tempter who tempts his men on to their own destruction, then we have to ultimately look forward in comedy. And I'm going to have to read you a passage. It's way up in Paradiso 26, lines 115 through 117. This is a moment in which Dante the Pilgrim has come so far up in the heavens that he is now having a conversation with Adam, the first created human. Adam has a bit to say about what the original sin was. These are the lines. Know then, my son, Adam says, calling Dante my son, know then, my son, that in itself the tasting of the tree was not the cause of such long exile. It lay in transgressing the boundaries. That's the bit right there, that it that somehow it wasn't just that we ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That wasn't really what did it. It's that there had been a limit set and we willfully walked over that limit and that was the fall. That's what we cause, what Adam here calls the long exile of humanity. That bit seems important to this because much here is made out of the gates of Hercules. Much here is made out of crossing over those gates that had been put as a warning sign against anyone going out beyond. They are going beyond what should be discovered. And in doing so, they are finding themselves out in the open Atlantic and they are finding themselves moving to their own destruction. So there is a way in which this passage from Paradiso comments strangely back on this Ulysses episode. I and my companions, as Ulysses says, had gotten old and slow when we made it to the narrow strait where Hercules had marked off the warning limits beyond which men shouldn't venture. And you should know, talk about enjambments. Those lines in the passage are wildly enjammed, telling us that there is a jaggedness to them, something that we should sit up and pay attention to. This is my seventh point. It is a tiny little word that means tiny or little. It's picciola, and Ulysses uses it three times in this passage, and it is so interesting to watch him use this word meaning tiny or minuscule picciola. The first time he uses it, he says, so I sat out on the deep open sea with only one ship and I translated it, just such few companions. What he says is picciola companions, little companions. You know, that word little there is strange because ultimately we know these men are going to drown at sea so that they are being minimized here. 
Picciola should automatically set off warning bells. He uses it again when he's in his big speech. He says, Oh, brothers, who through a hundred thousand dangers have made it to the West, to this last little bit of readiness that still hangs on in our senses, this last picciola of readiness, this last little tiny bit of readiness. He's appealing to their mortality. You've only got one thread of yourself left. And then he uses it again. After his big impassioned speech, he said, I had made my companion so impassioned with my picciola speech, my little speech for the journey that I could hardly have held them back from it. We know that this isn't a little speech. So we feel the irony. And if you think about this, moving from the few companions to the last bit of readiness to my little speech, the irony is building up in this word picciola. Ulysses is minimizing a great deal here. He's minimizing his own piece of this puzzle. He's minimizing the death of other humans, and he's minimizing their humanity. You've just got one little thread left. And the final eighth bit of the case against Ulysses, this entire speech shows us that Ulysses manipulates language for his own benefit because he gets us to sympathize with him. I mean, think about it. If his sin is using language in such a way to manipulate people to get what you want, if that's his fraud, using language in such a way to cause people to do things that bring them to their own destruction, even though it's for your alleged good or your alleged narcissism or your alleged egotism, to get them to move to that place using language, he has moved us to that place too. Because the speech, let me go back, gives me goosebumps. So the entire speech itself may be a case of false counsel. He is trying desperately to justify himself in front of me, and he is using language in such an efficient way that he is getting me to sympathize with him. But you know what that really means? <laughs> that really means that Dante is getting his readers to sympathize with Ulysses. You can't really believe that there is some character in hell named Ulysses who gave this speech, right? This speech is created by Dante, which means that in the end, back behind the puppet lies the puppet master, which is Dante. And Dante is getting me ultimately to sympathize with Ulysses. Is Dante tempting me towards something? Is Dante tempting me towards seeing Ulysses in a certain way? Is Dante testing me to see how far I'm willing to step over a boundary, even the boundary of the limits of hell, in order to save a character? If so, then Dante is also being a tempter, which brings us to the case for Ulysses. 
But to get there, you got to subscribe to this podcast and come back next time. Because next time, we will have the final episode on Ulysses, the moment in which we build a case for him. Rate this podcast. If you don't mind, please give it a rating and please drop a comment. Even something so small as great podcast will do wonders for the analytics here on Walking with Dante. I would most appreciate it. And thank you heartily and individually if I could. Thanks for being a part of this journey. I am so in love with Ulysses and so horrified with by him at the same moment. He is some terrifying figure out of my modern political world who can seduce me with language, who can get me to overlook boundaries, and who at the same time... Ugh, just might be right. It's all a wild confusion lying at the bottom of this text, and we're going to explore more of it next time. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. See you then. Mm-hmm.